You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has finished testifying on Capitol Hill, denying that Facebook sells data or that it knew what those people at Cambridge were up to with the data they obtained. There are supply chain cyber threats to satellites. North Korean destructive malware may be back. Early bird code injection. GCHQ takes on ISIS in cyberspace. Germany attributes a 2017 network intrusion to Russia. And an international body confirms British official accounts of the Salisbury nerve agent attacks. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 12, 2018. Facebook CEO Zuckerberg testified before the U.S. House yesterday, deflecting suggestions that Facebook collect less information. It's complicated, as one's relationship status so often is. Ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Frank Pallone, a Democrat of New Jersey, said he was disappointed by Facebook's unwillingness to limit its automatic collection of user data. Mr. Zuckerberg deflected the point by saying that his company's collection of data was, quote, a complex issue that deserves more than a one-word answer, end quote. Facebook's value, of course, lies precisely in the data that it collects and holds. Mr. Zuckerberg clarified several times to his inquisitors that Facebook doesn't sell data. Taken narrowly and literally, that's true, but most who heard the testimony regard that statement as hair-splitting. What the Facebook CEO said was, quote, There's a very common misperception about Facebook, that we sell data to advertisers. And we do not sell data to advertisers. We don't sell data to anyone. What we allow is for advertisers to tell us who they want to reach, and then we do the placement, End quote. As Motherboard pointed out, Facebook doesn't sell your data, but profits from it. Representative Greg Walden, a Republican of Oregon, went on to say, quote, But it's also just as true that Facebook's user data is probably the most valuable thing about Facebook. In fact, it may be the only truly valuable thing about Facebook. End quote. TechCrunch pointed out that one surprising bit of testimony threw some shade in the direction of Cambridge University. Mr. Zuckerberg asked if Facebook intended to take legal action against Cambridge Analytica and its university partners, didn't answer directly, but he did expand on how he disapproved of what he'd learned about Cambridge University's use of Facebook data for research, which he indicated he'd learned of when The Guardian broke the story in 2015. Mr. Zuckerberg said, quote, So we do need to understand whether there is something bad going on at Cambridge University overall that will require a stronger action from us, end quote. He and his direct reports may not have known, but plenty of people at Facebook almost surely did. Cambridge University wasn't amused and offered the following statement, quote, We would be surprised if Mr. Zuckerberg was only now aware of research at the University of Cambridge looking at what an individual's Facebook data says about them, 
Our researchers have been publishing such research since 2013 in major peer-reviewed scientific journals, and these studies have been reported widely in international media. These have included one study in 2015, led by Dr. Alexander Spector Kogan and co-authored by two Facebook employees. Mr. Zuckerberg's testimony is now in the books. Congress will continue its deliberations and inquiries. The city of Atlanta recently made headlines for falling victim to a ransomware attack and the amount of time it's taken to get things back up and running. Oren Falkowitz is CEO at Area One Security, and he shares his take on the situation. The city of Atlanta, you know, like many businesses and, and organizations uh, before, it has become a, a victim of cyber attack, in this case, ransomware. The, the interesting thing about, uh, you know, ransomware attacks is that almost 99% of them uh, start with uh, what's known as phishing, uh, where uh, users probably within the network either received an email and clicked on a link and entered their username and password somewhere else or visited a website or downloaded a file that that got this thing kicked off. And so I think what what struck a lot of folks is uh, how long it's taken them to get things back up and running. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, uh, it's inextricably tied to preparedness, in this case, the city. And I think some of the public comments uh, from the city have indicated that they really just weren't prepared for this, um, either in preempting or taking early action to prevent the incident from happening to begin with, and secondly, from uh, mitigating the, the, the fallout uh, therefrom. That, that being said, you know, it's not atypical. You know, once attackers get very deep inside your network, it is very difficult to root them out, uh, and it does often shut down operations. You may recall in the Sony hack a few years ago, they resorted to using pen and paper uh, for, for a little while, uh, this, this is a very common phenomenon that once you get to this point, it's really hard to rebuild the integrity and trust within your computer systems. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's that old saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, what, do you, what do you suppose they could have done a better job with to uh, prevent this in the first place? It's probably a little bit too early to to give a definitive uh, statement, not knowing all of the, the details, but but it's clear that a greater focus on uh, preempting phishing attacks, which is likely how these types of ransomware got into the network. And I'm sure there are a variety of other uh, mechanisms uh, that we'll learn about over the coming weeks. We hear a lot recently that um, the bad guys are relying on things like phishing, these human factors, to be able to get into the systems because it's inexpensive and it works. How much of the solution to this is a technical one and how much comes down to training? Well, training, you know, is a totally inefficient and ineffective solution for this. Uh, you know, everybody has a training program, and if it was an effective solution, there would be far less breaches. There is no evidence that humans can be trained to become perfect robots in any discipline. We've, we've done training in our armed forces. We do training in sex education. We do training in uh, the ability to drive cars, and we continue to see humans operate uh, with lots of error rates uh, there. It only takes one person to click. This is a problem that needs to be solved with technology. It's perfectly within our uh, capabilities to do that, but it requires the right kind of focus. You know, the interesting thing about phishing is that over 95% of all the incidents that are occurring around the world begin with phishing. Uh, and so uh, it is the root cause uh, for insecurity, for damage, for societal, you know, collapse as it relates to cybersecurity. 
uh, and it can it needs to be solved with a technological approach. The cybersecurity industry today is suffering from a lack of accountability. Today, people are buying more and more products, and they're not getting higher results. And it's imperative that the people buying products and the companies that are helping uh, to stop this problem really start focusing on being accountable and going towards performance models for their solutions uh, so that people can be assured they're getting what, what they purchase. That's Oren Falkowitz from Area One Security. North Korean destructive malware with features not seen since the 2014 Sony Pictures hack is believed to have returned, according to documents obtained by foreign policy. A Secure World Foundation report concludes that cyber attacks on satellites are likelier than the kinetic destruction of orbital platforms, despite some recent tests of early-stage anti-satellite interception technologies. The report discerns signs of growing Chinese and Russian interest in this cyber mode of attack. It conceives the risk as largely a supply chain problem, with Russian or Chinese suppliers of code and subcomponents building exploitable vulnerabilities into the satellites whose manufacture and operation rely on a globalized network of suppliers. In any case, it's a lot easier to leave a debugger in a product than it is to hit something in geosynchronous orbit with an interceptor. The kinetic interception is flashier and splashier, but let's not confuse cost with value. Bricking a satellite works just as well as breaking it into small pieces. Security firm Cyberbit reports finding what it calls a new early bird code injection technique in which malicious code runs prior to a process's main thread. This enables attacks to bypass many antivirus products. The technique is appearing in the Iranian threat group's APT33's turned-up backdoor, in Carburp banking malware, and in Dorkbot malware. Defensive techniques will no doubt evolve swiftly to handle this form of code injection, but it's an interesting move in the offense-defense seesaw. Britain's GCHQ says it conducted offensive cyber action against ISIS, successfully disrupting the terrorist group's operations and propaganda. German authorities have cautiously attributed a campaign against the Federal Republic's government and political networks to Russian state actors. Hans-Jörg Mossen, chief of the BFV, the Domestic Counterintelligence Service, says they can't be sure it was Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU, and that the unlikely possibility of a false flag operation can't be entirely ruled out, but that nonetheless they regard attribution of the attacks to Russia with high likelihood. Russian authorities continue to deny any involvement with the Russian nerve agent attack in Salisbury last month, but the independent investigation they asked to reveal the whole matter as a British provocation hasn't turned out as Moscow presumably hoped. Laboratory investigation of samples by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons found that the UK had correctly characterized the agent. They didn't call it Novichok or say Russia did it, but they did note that the test sample's unusually high degree of purity strongly suggested state activity. The OPCW's statement, released last night and distributed to members this morning, said in part, quote, the results of analysis by OPCW-designated laboratories of environmental and biomedical samples collected by the OPCW team confirm the findings of the United Kingdom related to the identity of the toxic chemical that was used in Salisbury and severely injured three people. End quote. An emergency follow-up meeting requested by the British government will be held next week. Russia has long called the attack a British provocation, probably mounted with an assist from the U.S. and maybe the Czech Republic. 
Russia's London embassy has also issued a statement in response to Yulia Skripal's decision to decline a visit from Russian consular personnel to check on her welfare. This decision is understandable, one might think, in view of her experience with nerve agent poisoning. And anyway, as she put it, if she decides she wants to talk to them, they're not difficult to reach. The Russian embassy says that it suspects that Ms. Skripal is being held by British security services. As they put it, quote, The document only strengthens suspicions that we are dealing with a forcible isolation of the Russian citizen. Quote, Nobody really believes this, but the episode shows the degree to which it's apparently possible to double down on the disinformation when the brakes are beating the boys. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Poulin. He's the Director of Connected Product Security at Booz Allen Hamilton. Chris, welcome back. Um, I saw an interesting article come by from Ars Technica, and it was singing the praises of the latest uh, Cadillac that has a feature called Super Cruise, which is one of many of these self-driving systems that uh, you know some of the high-end cars have. Well, some of the things that struck me about this Cadillac system was that it has sensors built into the steering wheel that keep an eye on you while you're driving, and specifically while this auto driving system is engaged, to make sure that you are keeping your gaze on the road. So it's actually monitoring your attention. And I think it's fascinating how many sensors are in these new cars. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that a lot of the um, consumer automobile uh, owners actually understand how many sensors are either in the car or being considered or, you know, so for example, there are um, sensors to monitor your heart rate to detect if you're having a heart attack while you're driving or or some sort of um, some heart condition. Um, there are scales in the seat to detect whether or not you're the same passenger as you were before. Hmm. There are analytics to detect the type of driving, you know, so effectively the car is trying to get to know you. And so it's that's an opportunity. I think it's it's great in many cases, you know, so if you're looking for teenage drivers and who are more apt to text, maybe that I, um, even if they're not engaging the super crews, they, it can detect whether or not they're paying attention or they're texting their friends or whatever. So that's, it's great in that sense, but there's also the privacy concern and it kind of freaks people out quite honestly. You know, there's always that trade-off. And I think you and I have talked about that before, which is the functionality versus privacy and how do you get past, and I know this is not exactly what the uncanny valley is all about, um, but it's pretty close, which is that even though the cars don't look like humans, which is technically what Uncanny Valley is is uh, characterized as, um, it's still trying. It's still a smart automobile. And so, when do people get beyond the creepy feeling that the vehicle knows too much about them, or that their hmm. their Echo Dot knows too much about them, or their Google Home, you know, is listening in on them? So, we're kind of in this weird little uh, area. We're getting acclimated. And I heard a story, maybe from you, by the way, <laughs> that. Elevators you used to have elevator operators back in the whatever yes, uh, 1920s yes. and 30s. I, yes. Were you the one who told me this? I yeah. was, I was. But go on, it's a good story. Yeah, because even though the elevators could, in fact, operate autonomously, you know, the people could do what they do now, which is press the button, and the elevator would would operate without the um, operator. They felt more comfortable with someone who was an expert to actually operate the elevator. Right. And so it's sort of this interim step. It's this. Um, it's it bridges you between something you're familiar with and something that you're not. And I, that's what's happening with the automotive industry right now. And I actually heard somebody, I know I'm going a little bit off topic. I was listening to the radio and these, the hosts were talking about the fact that they're not technical people, you know, that uh, there are autonomy, uh, full autonomy, I believe if I read or I heard this correctly, is being, has been legislated. It's being allowed in California or some places in California for some cars. Right. And so they were like, oh, I'm never going to get into a uh, self-driving vehicle. And then one of the hosts said, well, what happens if it's snowing out? And I find that an odd thing to think about in a negative way because humans are notoriously awful at driving in the snow. Right. In fact, I think that those same hosts were talking about how bad people drive in the snow and the rain in the first place. And so vehicles are going to be better at doing that than humans are in the first place. Once you get beyond certain technical uh, challenges that, you know, I think we're, we're either past or we're right on the verge of passing. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting that there's this perception that humans are still better at doing things than machines are in some cases. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that transition goes. Chris Poulin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.